Anybody ever used Google Maps in here before? Waze, Apple Maps, if you're the original OG on, on Maps, maybe MapQuest, if you want to go all the way back, like when map directions were actually printed out, right? Well, a couple weeks ago, Lexus and I, we were in Little Rock, and we were trying to find a new restaurant, and of course, it's at night, right, which only amps up the stress level for the people in the car, and Braden's maybe getting or maybe not getting a little fussy in the back, right, and so we're experiencing this, and about halfway through our navigation to the restaurant, we realized that our cell phone signal was dropped, and so the navigation that we thought we were following is actually navigating us to who knows where, Right, and we're somewhere in Arkansas, but we're really not sure. And so we finally we pull over, and I want to go one direction, and she wants to go a different direction. And so then we are just in reengage talking about conflict resolution. And so now we get to practice conflict resolution in the car, right, of saying sorry and asking forgiveness and asking for anything else that I may have said that could have hurt or offended you, right? And so then we get back on the same page and we try to reload the the app, and it won't work. And so we shut the app down and delete the app and reload the app, and we get our cell phone signal back and. We get our directions put in, and finally, we get to the restaurant, right? And so this big mess of a situation, and I think in a similar way, that it's God's Word, it's God's Spirit, and God's people that help to guide us through this life. It's God's Word that gives us directions and instructions on how we should live. It's God's Spirit that helps to guide us and empower us to do what the Lord has called us to do. And ultimately, it's God's people who will encourage us as we move forward towards our final destination. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 this day, this morning, I think is is giving us three very specific instructions to the Corinthian church. He's giving us the ability to see that it is God's word that helps us to recalculate our lives, to redirect our lives towards his truth, that it's his spirit that provides us with growth and our ability to understand and to know this world. And finally, it's his people who encourage us to continue on as we wait for our final destination to appear. And so we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1 this morning. If you want to go ahead and flip there, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. You can also follow along on the screen. He says, but I, brothers, and you're like, well, that's, that's sweet, right? He's calling them brothers. He's saying they're family because in a minute he's about to smack them across the face. But that's here in a second. He says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk and not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And so what does Paul mean when he's saying that he could not address them as spiritual people? He's saying that they're spiritually immature. In verse 2, he talks about feeding them with milk. He says, I've given you the gospel message of Jesus Christ, that that was the milk, that that was the most basic form of nutrition to help you grow in Christ. And he says, it's been a while since I have given you that milk and you still have yet to grow. Because the church in Corinth, they're caught here between two kind of natures. One nature on one side is, uh, is the flesh and the desires of the flesh and serving the world. And on the other side is the kingdom of God and the desire to live and to work out of the spirit of God. And so he says, Corinthian church, you are caught right in the middle. You, you want to lean to the world in some ways, and you want to lean to the, to the, to the Lord in others. And he says, you haven't desired to grow in your faith. You're still on spiritual milk. And so what does Paul mean to be a spiritual person? I think he means that as a person that is spiritual is fully surrendered to God. 
That a spiritual person in this context is fully surrendered to God. Spiritual maturity then is thinking like God thinks. And you're like, well, man, that sounds really oversimplified. Like that sounds just a little bit too easy, but follow me here. What happens if we think like God thinks? If we take the truth of God and we say, God, would you inform my thoughts, inform how I'm thinking about what you want me to do in this situation? Right? Our, our thoughts then inform our emotions, they inform our feelings, and then our feelings then inform our action. Right? And so if we've started with the foundation of going, Lord, I want your thoughts, I want to think like you think, then at the end result, we are still acting and doing as God has instructed us to do. And so I believe that spiritual maturity is simply thinking like God thinks. Lexus and I, this past uh, Thursday, we took Braden to the, to the doctor for his uh, four-month checkup. And when you're at the doctor with an infant, they check literally everything. I mean, there's like nothing that goes unchecked, right, with a four-month-old. And inevitably, they end up like urinating on the weighing station, that got some of y'all's attention. He's like, why is he talking about a kid urinating? It happens, right? Just be ready for it. And so then the parents are then stressed out, and they're checking everything, and he's checking his hips, and he's checking his feet, and his ears, and his nose, and his mouth, and his throat, and he's asking us questions like, hey, is he rolling over yet? Have you started him on any type of solid food at all or not? And he's asking all of these questions because he's trying to determine whether or not Braden has met certain developmental milestones for a certain period of time in his life. And if Braden is not meeting those, then he is, they are going to call it a failure to thrive. That if he is not meeting his milestones, then he has failed to thrive. And I was thinking about that this week, and I'm like, that's exactly what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church. He's saying, Corinthian church, you've been given spiritual milk. You should be eating some, some more solid food, but you aren't. And so you are failing to thrive. You're failing to grow up as you should. I mean, if I were to bring a four-year-old up here right now, and tell you that that four-year-old is still his primary or her primary source of nutrition is milk, you'd be like, there's something going on there, right? As a four-year-old, he, he or she should be eating some more solid food. They shouldn't be stuck just to milk. And so Paul is saying here, it's been four years since I brought you the gospel, since Christ was spoken to you, but you haven't grown up. You're failing to thrive. You should be eating solid food, but you aren't. And so for us, when we believe in Christ, the Spirit comes to live inside of us, and He gives us the ability to understand the deeper truths of the Lord. To be fully surrendered to God gives us the ability to think as God thinks, to feel as He feels, and to act as He acts. A spiritual maturity, then, is a result of your spiritual availability. Spiritual maturity is a result of your spiritual availability. What do I mean by that? I mean that the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, your earthly age does not equate to your spiritual maturity. Did you catch that? Your earthly age does not equate to your spiritual maturity. Your spiritual availability then is sitting down and being present with the Lord. The Lord allows time to learn from Him and to allow the Spirit to soften your heart, to remove yourself from the hustle and bustle that we experience in this world, to understand the gospel and the deeper things of faith. And so how does this happen? Verse 6, Paul says, I planted, I gave you the gospel, Apollos watered, he continued to teach you, but God gave the growth. 
It's God that gives growth in our spiritual lives. Doug always says that you don't move past the gospel, that you move deeper into the gospel. Jesus in John 16 Verses 12 through 14 says this, I still have many things that I want to say to you, speaking to the disciples, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus is saying there, there's more that I want to teach you. There's more that I want to tell you about what's going to happen and what's to come, but I can't yet because you will not yet understand it. You need the Spirit of God to fill you, to give you clear understanding of what it is that I want to teach you. The benefit of being a modern day believer is that we have what the disciples did not yet have at that point. We have the Spirit of God indwelling inside of us. That he is the one that gives us the ability to understand the deeper things of the Lord. That that's why we have the fruits of the Spirit. Because I don't know about you, but anybody in here, just based on their own ability, their own volition, their own aptitude, can you provide yourself with eternal peace? Anybody? Anybody just killing it on self-control? Anybody just killing it? How's your New Year's resolution going? Right? I gained two pounds this week. Here we go. Okay? Anybody just okay with bearing with one another even when it's tough? What about patience, love, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness? Anybody just knocking it out of the park? We can't do it on our own. It is God who does the work inside of us. We need the Spirit to grow. We cannot do anything without the power of the Holy Spirit. So when we do and try by our own strength, we are working out of our flesh Paul says in verse 3, for you are still in the flesh. He says, while there is jealousy and strife, he says, while there is jealousy and conflict among you, are you not of the flesh and not behaving in a human way? He says, aren't you going back to what you said you're walking away from? Now, let me choose something maybe that we all struggle with or if we, if we don't recognize that we struggle with it. It's this idea of comparison. That you walked in the room this morning, you walked in the lobby out there, you were taking your kids back and you saw that dude in his muscle shirt and you're like, I didn't even know that muscles could grow there. Like I didn't even think that you, how do you work that muscle to make it look like that, right? And you begin to compare yourself. You saw her and you're like, my goodness, she is so pretty. I can't ever be that pretty. I mean, she got up and washed her hair with real shampoo today. She didn't even just use dry shampoo, messy bun, right? I've only learned that since I've gotten married. I'm like, what a, what a great invention, right? That you can just, whatever, and it's done. Saves like three days on getting yourself ready for church. So no shade. Right? You begin to compare yourself. Why? Because we compare like we breathe. We're constantly comparing ourselves to someone else. You're going to get in your car this afternoon. You're going to see their car. You're going to drive by their house. Or you're going to see their kids or their spouse. And you're going to compare and go, man, I wish I could be as good as I think they are. You came into worship this morning. You saw someone raise their hand. You're like, man, they must be more spiritual than I am. Why? Because we compare like we breathe. So why do we compare? Leon Festinger in 1954 came up with a social comparison theory which says the reason we compare is to determine our worth in society. 
that the reason we compare is determine is to determine our worth in society. We're trying to figure out how valuable we are. But here's the reality. If, if, you're, if your value is constantly determined by your performance or whether or not people applaud you when you do something good, if your value is always going up and down, constantly riding the roller coaster of people's applause for you or lack of appreciation of you, then you're going to constantly be on this roller coaster of value and self-worth for the rest of your life. When you look at the gospel, and when you look at what we'll see here in just a couple of weeks in 1 Corinthians 6, you'll see a message that stands in complete opposition to that of the social comparison theory. Because God says that you've been bought with a price. That it's not your peers around you, it's not your employer, it's not your friends, it's not any of those things that determine your value. Your value is set and determined by Christ's sacrifice on the cross. That when he went to the cross, it was Christ publicly declaring to everyone on this earth for all time that you have tremendous value. A value that is so great that I will die for you just to have a relationship with you. So your value is not determined by your peers, your value is determined by your Savior. Approval no longer comes from the world. You don't have to play this game of, well, I want to be this way and in some senses, but I need to be this way in more senses so that I can make this balance thing kind of work out. You just say, no, I, I'm submitted to Christ. My value is in Christ. My identity is in Christ. You don't get to determine that for me. Jerry Bridges says that we are to preach the gospel to ourselves daily. Because the gospel isn't just a means of transportation. The gospel is a man, means of spiritual transformation. Because when you understand your depravity, the more you recognize your need for spiritual maturity. With the Corinthians, there was a lack of application of the gospel. And so I hope that won't be true of us. I hope that that won't be true of me but rather that we will live out a recognition of the gospel as it transforms us into more spiritually mature people. Verse 7, So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. He goes back to it. He says God gives the growth. Not the teacher, not the preacher, not the worship leader, not the Christian podcaster. None of those people give you growth. God gives you the growth. And so instead of being preoccupied by those people, we should be occupied by our Savior. Paul has been teaching or trying to get their focus back. He's been trying to help them recalculate their lives to get their thoughts and their actions and their words back to their Savior. Back to the right person. 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7 says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time that He may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. What's Peter saying? He's saying, take everything that you have to the Lord. You don't know how to deal with it? Take it to the Lord. It's too stressful for you? Take it to the Lord. You're not sure how it's going to end up? Take it to the Lord. He says, take everything to the Lord and humble yourselves before him. He says, sit at your father's feet. Sit at your savior's feet. Allow him to teach you and to talk to you, to instruct you on how to live your life. How to apply his truth to a certain situation. The beautiful thing about the gospel and the spirit of God being given to the believer is that our growth is not dependent on another person. 
Our growth is wholly and fully dependent on ourselves and our desire to sit with the Lord because He is willing to teach you. He is willing to help you. And so I hope you don't think this, but I cannot give you faith. No one who stands on this stage can give you faith. No Christian podcaster, no one in this world can give you faith. The only one that can give you faith is God. But God can, in fact, has set it up that we have to rely on Him. That He is the one that gives the growth. That if we want to know and grow in wisdom and knowledge and understanding of our world, if we want any of the fruits of the Spirit to be present in our lives, then we have to run to Him. That we have to ask Him. That we have to consult Him. And here's where it moves to God's people. From God's Word to God's Spirit to God's people, then we get to ask other believers who we know who have submitted their lives to the Lord. We need to go, hey, what, what am I, is what I'm hearing here, is what I'm thinking here, is that true? Is that backed up by Scripture? What do you think Scripture says about this? What do you think I should act, or how should I act in this way? Am I hearing the wrong thing here? Do I have a, a different motive maybe than what the Lord would have? And so the Lord wants to give you all of his wisdom and understanding. You and I just need to focus our lives on the gospel and on the Lord. And it brings our lives, it helps us to recalculate our lives to provide ourselves with spiritual growth. Paul then moves on to a new direction. Verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. You're like, that's a lot of different analogies all in one sentence there, Paul. He's saying, I want to redirect your focus. I want to give you a new direction. He says originally that you're God's field, that he is the one that has planted the seed, that God wants to cultivate faith inside of you. And now he's going to switch it. He's going to say, you're like a building. Because God wants to build something inside of you. God wants you to use use you to build something for his kingdom. Verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care of how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Paul's saying that everything that is going on, the fact that Paul is even able to deliver the message of the gospel to them is by nothing other than God's grace and mercy on his life. I mean, think about where God found Paul, a.k.a. the artist formerly known as Saul of Tarsus. He found him on a place called the Road to Damascus, but what Paul had been doing is he had been making a game out of arresting and imprisoning and persecuting Christians. He thought that it was his duty, it was his responsibility that God would be pleased with him if he were to kill believers in Jesus Christ. And so if there was anyone else in the world that God should have wanted to wipe off the face of the earth because of his actions towards believers, it was Saul of Tarsus. It was Paul himself. And so Paul writing this, he says, it is nothing other than the grace and the mercy of God that has given me the opportunity to speak this gospel message to you, the gospel of Christ to you. And isn't that our story? We we may not be out killing and murdering Christians for fun. 
But we still have sin that separates us from our holy and heavenly and high God. It's part of our story. Certainly part of mine before God saved me. As a cheater, an adulterer, addicted to porn and the party, finding life and everything and anything I could outside of Jesus. I wanted to run in the exact opposite direction of Jesus. I said, I don't need you. I can fulfill myself on my own terms. I can do what I want to do, and I don't need you to do it. And then in a dorm room at Kansas State University, the gospel became present in my life. And it was nothing other than the power and the grace of God and the gospel of God on the human heart that gives me the opportunity to even stand before you this morning and go, I am nothing without Christ. And that's what Paul is saying. He says it's all God's grace that when I came and preached to you originally that I laid the foundation for you, the foundation being on Jesus. He says that's why in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, he says, I spoke of first importance about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that that was the foundation that was laid. And so Paul is saying, I'm not with you anymore, but anyone who comes after me must be careful on how they build, how they add to the foundation of the church that I have laid. Verse 11, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Any other foundation would be inappropriate. Building with any other type of material or structures would cause the building to fall and the people to be scattered. The purpose of the church is to be used as an instrument by God by which human flourishing happens. As the body uses their gifts and talents and abilities given to them by God to serve others and to make much of the gospel. Do you believe that? That this place is not about your comfort? That it's not about your preferences? But rather it's a place that God desires to use his servants to encourage you and challenge you, to train you, so that as a believer in Christ you may be fully equipped as a saint for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. To the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. The church is here. The body is here to help you mature in Christ so that you can fulfill your purpose in this life. Which is to know God and to make him known. And so the foundation is Jesus. If the foundation is Jesus, what do you do? I think that you make everything about Jesus. Verse 12, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Paul is talking about a couple of different things. He's talking about building materials and what you build the church with. Then he's also talking about this day. He says there's a day coming. You're like, what is the day coming? What is he talking about? He's talking about the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10 clears it up. It says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what he is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, contextually, what are we talking about here? We are not talking about a salvation judgment. 
Paul is speaking to believers as believers in Jesus Christ. This is not a salvation issue. This is not a you're going to heaven or you're going to hell type of issue. This is a you're a believer and what have you done with the gifts and talents and resources that I have given you to steward well the body of Christ throughout the span and scope of your life. And so Paul is saying that the fire is a refining tool. What happens to gold, silver, and precious stones when you put them in the fire? They might melt. They might deform. They might be liquefied if the fire is hot enough, but they're not consumed. What happens to wood, hay, and straw when you put them in fire? They're burned up. They're gone, right? Especially if you add gasoline. Just gone. Right? They're consumed. The fire consumes the weaker materials. So Paul is saying, be careful how you build on the foundation because what you build determines the quality of your work. And one day before God, all the work we've done will either burn up or will become a reward for you in heaven. And so how do we build with gold, silver, and precious stones? I think that you start with the foundation and you go from there, that you preach Jesus continually. So when you're here at church, We are going to preach Jesus. The reason why our middle name literally here is Fellowship Bible Church is because we believe in the authority and the inerrancy and the truth statements that are contained in the Bible. And so when you are here, our goal, our desire, one of the reasons why we are in 1 Corinthians for like 18 years this spring is because we want to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, section by section, so that when we stand before the Lord, as the teachers in this church, when we stand before the Lord, that we can give an account that says that we taught the truth as it was meant to be taught. And so that's our goal. That's our aim. That's our desire here. That's why Mike, one of our elders, spent five minutes reading the entirety of the scriptures to you. Because it's not about anything else or any other thing other than Jesus. And we want you to know the gospel. Paul says, tells Timothy, a young pastor in 1 Timothy 1.5, he says, Teach the truth in love, Timothy. And so the most unloving thing that we could do is just come up here and talk to you about certain topics that are going on in our world. The most loving thing that we can do is teach you the scriptures so that you can know them yourself. Because one day we will all stand before him and we will give an account of how we stewarded well or how we did not steward well the gifts and talents and resources that God has given us. And so some of you right now, I, you're like me. And you're saying, well, I, 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 don't, I don't have as much as they do. I don't have the position. I don't have the material resources. I don't have the financial resources. I don't have the microphone. I don't have any of that. How am I supposed to steward well what God has given me? And you start asking the Lord to be faithful in this moment with what he has given you. And then you ask him in the next, and in the next, and in the next, and in the next moment. And that's how you build a life that stewards well the resources of the Lord. Eugene Peterson says the essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be long obedience in the same direction. That this is what makes life worth living. What's he talking about? He's saying that obedience, that being faithful to do as God has instructed you to do in each and every moment throughout the span of your life, is what creates a life that is worth living. And so this is not to scare you. 
This is simply to encourage you to partner with the Lord, to know Him and to make Him known, to seek to honor the Lord with the life that He has given you and to steward His resources well. And then finally, I think Paul offers a little bit of a word of encouragement. You're like, praise the Lord. It's been rough. Paul in verse 10 calls himself a wise master builder. The term here is sophos architecton. He's literally saying that I am a thought builder. And he calls himself that because he built the foundation of the church on Jesus and not on any other thing. And so the question becomes, if we want to be wise builders, how should we proceed? How should we build our lives? Verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is folly with God, for it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. I think we can understand where the Corinthians are coming from. Why they maybe struggled to build in the way that the Lord has prescribed for them to build. Because they wanted to be liked by their non-Christian friends. They wanted to be accepted in their workplaces. They wanted to be accepted in the public square. They wanted to be seen as wise so that they can begin to take on or they began to take on the values and the thoughts and the practices of their peers that they caved under the weight of society. So God says that the thoughts of the wise are useless, that it is foolishness to him. God is offering you the opportunity to become a skilled master builder in an eternal kingdom. Building with the wisdom of God on the foundation of Christ will make us seem foolish to the world. Think about what Christ says. Deny yourself. Trust in something other than yourself. Sacrifice yourself for the good of others. Put yourself last. Do not return a harsh statement with another harsh statement. Desire to reconcile with your enemy rather than determining to destroy them. I don't know about you, but I don't think our culture, our world is saying that. The world would say, you'd have to be a fool. You'd have to be a straight-up fool to think that that is wise. Trust in the Lord for wisdom protects you from falling victim to the ever-changing ideas and thoughts and preferences of the world. Ephesians 4.14 says that we are made so that we may no longer be children. Right? He's going back to this idea of spiritual infancy. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and in deceitful schemes. You want to be wise? You want to pick out the deceitfulness of this world? You want to pick out the ways that the world is trying to trick you? It says, trust in the wisdom of God because it is the wisdom of God that the world is easily caught in and called out by. God's wisdom anchors us. It takes us from looking for the next new thing and brings us back to the only thing that can give us a solid foundation. A foundation of truth that has its pilings. The things that are holding the foundation in the earth. That its pilings of love and grace and mercy and peace and hope are driven deep into the bedrock of truth. And that truth does not change from a God that does not change and a Savior that does not change and a Spirit that does not change. Years ago, I was over at a friend's house um, and and the, the dad is a pastor in the DFW area. 
And, uh, and we were sitting there on the couch watching a game one Saturday afternoon. And, um, and this is right as TiVo became a thing where you could actually like pause live television and people are like, mind blown. Like, how does that happen? And now we just do it all the time. But you could pause live television. And so we were sitting there, we were watching the commercials. It was kind of like the last commercial of the commercial break. And so I'm ready for the game to come back on. And he gets to the end of the commercial and he pauses the television. I'm like, what are you doing, dude? Like the game's about to come on. And he looks at his kids. His kids knew what was up. I didn't. He goes, okay, I want you guys to spot the lie. He goes, spot the lie. And I'm like, what do you mean spot the lie? And he goes, the advertisers, the television companies, everything and everyone in this world is telling you something. They are trying to get you to believe something. That you're not good enough, that you don't have this, or you need that, or if you had that, then you could be that. And so he goes, spot the lie. A couple of years ago, there's a documentary. It's probably about one of the only things on Netflix that's any good, but it was a documentary called The Social Dilemma. And it's talking about the, the world, the social media world that we live in, and how advertisers and companies are trying to sell us on something. And at the beginning of the movie, it's a quote that will stick in my mind for probably the rest of my life. And they just say, if you are not the seller or the creator of the product, then you are the product. The world is trying to sell you something. And so God's truth, the wisdom of God, the scriptures of God, the spirit of God, the gospel of God stand in opposition to that. Our spiritual growth reminds us that we have the opportunity to use the wisdom of God, to think how God thinks, to believe what God believes, to feel what God feels, and ultimately to act how God acts. This is all part of our spiritual growth. Then God offers a promise through Paul to the Corinthians, verse 21. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Paul's point is to look at what Christ has done, and because what of Christ has done, you can trust that his promises of eternal life are true for you, that his wisdom is better than your worldly wisdom. Everything in this world is for your benefit because of Christ, is what Paul says. Paul uses a figure of speech when he says life or death. It's called a merism. And he says, you take two polar opposites. You have death and you have life. And he says, everything in between death and life is for your benefit, that it can be used for your benefit. It's just a way of saying that everything that you need, God will give you if you lack for nothing when you are Christ. And the best part of Christ is that you, Christ is in God. And so as you follow Christ, Christ is following the Lord. And so when you trust in Christ, it changes you as you're indwelled by the Spirit, that you get to live with God, that you don't have to wait for eternity to come because eternity has come. Christ has come. Death is not your greatest fear anymore. It is actually an excitement for you because in death, it doesn't get worse. It gets better. Your present now has purpose. Why? Because Christ has brought you into his eternal family. And he invites you to be an ambassador of his. And your future is secure because one day you will spend all of eternity beholding his beauty and glory and grandeur. Paul is saying that everything is to your benefit. 
that we should rejoice that God has given us all things to accomplish what he has called us to do, which is to grow in our faith and our maturity in him and to use the giftings and talents and abilities and resources that he has given to us to build his eternal kingdom. Let's take it home this morning. The goal is for you to see that as a believer in Christ, that you have everything that you need. Tools, equipment, resources, you have it. You need to begin to build the foundation of faith that Christ is given to you as a builder. You are expected to use the resources of your time, your talents, your treasures that God has given you to build his kingdom, to build his church, and to build your life in such a way that at the day of judgment, that it is not consumed by the fire, but rather it ends with an eternal reward in heaven. And so this morning we are going to finish off our time together with communion. And I could not think of a better way to end our time together than to talk about and, and to allow ourselves to see a physical representation of the gospel. That in the, in the bread and in the juice, that you have a physical representation of Christ, your Savior crucified on the cross. That the bread is representative of his body that is broken for you. And the juice is representative of this blood that was spilled on the ground and on the cross for you. So that we no longer determine our value by the standards of this world, but that we determine our value by the standard of our Savior. And he says that you are mine. That if you belong to me, if you profess faith, if you say that, you, that I am your Savior, then you are mine for eternity. Your value is set and you are tremendously incredibly valuable to the point that I would give up my life for you. And so I know a lot of times on Sunday mornings, this feels a little bit like a religious ritual. That it's just kind of something that we do because that's what we do. And so this morning, do not make it a religious ritual. Make it a time that you can sit, that you can humble yourselves before your Savior. And to say, Lord, would you show me what it is that you want me to know in this moment? Would you remind me of the sacrifice that you have made so that I can go from death to life for eternity? Don't make this into a religious ritual. Make this into a time to meet with your eternal Savior. Amen, right? He is our living hope that in Christ, Christ is also in God. So that gives us everything that we need to do what he has called us to do, which is to build with him his eternal kingdom. And so this week, take that as a reminder. Take that as an encouragement that you have been resourced by the king of the universe to do what he has asked you to do. A um, couple of things. One, if, if after the service, if there's anyone that would like to talk with myself or one of our elders, we would love to talk with you or pray with you, whatever it is that you need in this moment, we'll be down here in the front for that. Also, Courtney wanted to say, uh, don't forget to sign up for the auto care day out in the lobby. Otherwise, you guys know what to do from here, right? Go love first. Have a great week of worship. We'll see you next week.